We are in the book of Matthew. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, please. Let's get one to you. Matthew chapter 16. We pick it up in verse 34. Read along with me, if you would, please. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and he said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And also I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and to suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself to take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What, man, what will man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father and his angel, with his angels. Sorry, the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels. And then it will reward each one according to his works. Our last verse of the chapter really pins on to the next chapter, but we'll read it for the sake of protocol. Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who shall not taste of death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, you know exactly what you want to accomplish here. I thank you for the privilege of being able to serve you. I thank you for the honor of being able to turn my heart to you, Lord, and to expect your word to teach us and instruct us and challenge us and equip us. I get that, Lord, and I'm so thankful. And I pray today, Lord, that you would meet us here in this room, that you would powerfully and personally transform us. Lord, may we get the exhortations we need to get today. Make us receptive, Lord. Receptive. Not just available to hear, but receptive to the move of your Holy Spirit. God, we really, really need you. And I pray that you would do your work now. Overcome me by your Holy Spirit, Lord, that I would see things your way, not my way. And come upon me that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do. Captivate us in your word now, I pray. Make this time perfect time spent, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any day, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be your authority. Three days ago, we as a nation, as a country voted to leave the jurisdiction of the European Union for a more independent identity. In this unprecedented regime change, we can draw from what the Bible and biblical history has already taught us in regards to the transfer of powers. Older friendships and allegiances will be questioned. Those of lesser favorable relations around us may see this time most opportune to test the strength and conviction of this new governance. I think of Hiram with David. 
checking with Solomon. Hey, we're still good, right? Older friends and allegiance is being questioned. Ammon, Edom, Moab, will all Syria will all test and be quick to attack and challenge when a king transfers, when a power changes. You've probably already heard about Spain stepping in and starting to argue over the possession or the rule of Gibraltar. Those under its jurisdiction, however, will be in hot pursuit of fresh identity. Who are we now as a person, as a people, as a nation? The nation and the people will be driven to reanalyze then what truly is their place and purpose in the world. In short, who are we really and why are we here? That existential crisis we as a nation now face. Now we can, as this country, as this nation, abandon reason and allow those of the offended world around us to define for us who those things are, what we are. But I guarantee you its assessment will carton us off to irrelevance, impotence, <clears throat> and insignificance. But the church in this country can testify of that. We have let the world define us, set its boundaries, set our targets. And the church here as well is deemed by the world irrelevant, impotent, and insignificant. Or we could go to our Creator and ask Him. We can embrace His call, engage His promises, and let His Word prevail. And this is exactly what Jesus does in this section. Jesus takes His students away from their familiar surroundings to the most Babylonish territory in all of Israel. It's the northernmost part. It was the part taken by Dan by force when they didn't like the allotment given to them in Joshua. So they went and took their own property to the north, so far north that it'll say when all of Israel is exclaimed at least six different times from Dan to Beersheba, Dan being the farthest north, Beersheba the farthest south. It is the place where after Solomon steps off the scene, his commander takes ten of the tribes of the north, and as he does, he builds a golden calf and an altar in Tel Dan and tells the people, aren't you tired of traveling so dang far to go worship in the temple? Let's be convenient. Let's go back and let's be honest. As a nation, don't we think we know the cow longer than we've known this living God? We worshiped the cow before God came in Exodus when we were sitting on a promise of redemption and deliverance, but we somehow thought somehow we're more intimate with the cow than we were with the living God. So we borrow our ideals from this bank of nonsense. And we start saying, sure, let's go and worship the cow. It's touchable, it's feelable, it's visible, we can see it. Let's go to the cow. Let's gather around the cow Hey, it's just down my block. That's so much better than going to the temple, for goodness sakes. You realize the temple is going to talk about sacrifice. I don't want to talk about sacrifice. Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about getting drunk. Now, those are good things. We can get those at the cow. And it's so convenient. It's so close. And yet the guy who builds this cow, or has it built, the king Yeroboam, will rule for 22 years. And of all the sins listed and attributed to a human being, no one has their sin mentioned more in Scripture, including Judas Iscariot, than this guy, Jeroboam. Twenty-two times we read of the sin of Jeroboam. Twenty-two times. That's one a year for the twenty-two years he reigns. He'll build a second cow down in Bethel so that it's close enough so that it'll make it even easier that if you were on your way, to the temple, well, this is closer and it's easier and it certainly is less demanding of you. So Jesus takes them to the idol hub, the shopping mall of idols of all of Israel. That cow was built, if you will, in the 930s B.C. But by this point, this place has become so much more. As a matter of fact, and we'll take a look here at the, <clears throat> the mock-up. 
In the, in the drawing of Caesarea Philippi, you can see here these claves, these enclaves. There's one here, there's one here, and these two big temples as well. It is important to note that people went there like we would hit the Westfield Mall or the High Street. Except they went there shopping for gods. In every country of the ancient world, there were four basic kind of gods. The gods of production, provision, protection, and pleasure. Production. Like God, give me children. Like God, give me, you know, a greater, give me a great business. God, give me that success. In Sumeria, not Samaria, but Sumeria, where Abraham came from, that was Ninersag of Ur. For the Canaanites, that's Baal and Dagon. For Egypt, that was Apis, the cow, and Heket. For provision, the Sumerians had Anu. The Canaanites had a start. The Egyptians had Isis and Nut and Seth, the god of chaos, that they would seek to keep away so that he wouldn't destroy their crops. For protection, the Sumerians had Enki, the Canaanites had Anat, and the Egyptians had Inhotep and Niet. For pleasure, the Sumerians had Enlil and Achedian. The Canaanites had Hamut, Molech, you're familiar, Milchom, Asherah, Ashtar, the Egyptians, had Fatba, Hathor, and Amun. In all of the major societies surrounding Israel, there were always these four basic kind of gods. And Jesus, God in the flesh, is walking over people who are bowing to pieces of rock, thinking they're calling out to a god. And it's going to be here that Jesus is going to ask them, who, what's the word on the street? But I want to remind you, the word on the street was not a secular survey. It was the word on the street of God's people. Who are they say I am? And you can see Jesus walking with his boys and looking and saying, look at this, guys. Look at them. Bow to that piece of stone. Show them that second picture, if you would, please. And this is what it looks like today. This is what you can still see. Those iconoclasts, these little spaces where Chunks of stone carved into things could still have existed today. It went from this place called Caesarea Philippi to a place called Panias, named after Pan, like Peter Pan. That, but then the Arabs couldn't say a P, so they, they called it Ban, and so now it's called Banias, which is really close to the word for toilet in a lot of languages, in the Romantic languages, which I think is quite fitting. But imagine Jesus walking by and seeing people bow and asking them, Aren't you tired of this? Watching people bow to stone, to bow to power, and bow to fame, and bow to freedom to get drunk, and freedom to have sex with everyone, and freedom to get stoned, and freedom to porn. Well, there's no freedom in those things. Freedom to the office flirt, bowing to their gossip, bowing to their backbiting, bowing to demanding from God what their will is. Bowing, 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 bowing. And Jesus says, aren't you tired of this? Aren't you tired of bowing to stone? To pieces of rock that can do nothing for you. The best thing that idol can do if you're asking for protection is if you threw it at someone. And imagine the broken heart of God walking in the flesh. Who's going to die for these people who are bowing to pieces of rock? Is this what you want? Do you want to look like the rest of the world? Is this what you want to look like? Is this it? Don't you realize what this says? This is open testimony of how incomplete they are as human beings. The same person that tells you, oh, they're okay, is on a crack itch for power or fame or money or for whatever, because somewhere in it they think if they could just get that baby, just get that marriage, just get that house, just get that job, just get that whatever, they'll be okay. But it is constant testimony that they're empty. And we step over them. And we step over them because when our eyes are off Jesus, we don't want to be reminded that's still us. And what would it be like if Jesus watched us on our time when we think no one else is looking? How many of us are still bowing and what we're bowing to? 
And Jesus asks them, well, who am I to you? But first, who am I from the world's perspective? Who am I to others? And I have this opportunity to either let the world define Jesus or to let the word define Jesus. But I want to remind you, beloved, this is not the unsaved secular world defining Jesus. This is the world that claims to be his defining him. The religious. In Luke 9.18, in parallel passage, he tells us he was alone praying when his disciples joined him. In Mark 8.27, it tells us that he was praying He was walking. His disciples caught up with him. And as Jesus is walking, he's asking this question. Can you see him bowing down to that chunk of stone? Him walking over people, bowing down to those chunks of stone. Stepping over people. His disciples trying not to bother the people. As they cut themselves. As they beat themselves. As they hurt themselves. Because they're convinced if they could do that, maybe they'd get favor from this horrible thing that they're bowing before. And Jesus asks then, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Notice he uses the term Son of Man. From the perspective of a man, who is Jesus the man? I think it's strange that the answer is fourfold in verse 14. And it makes sense to me. Some say John the Baptist. But was John the Baptist the one who, by the way, told us, that we couldn't possibly bear fruit without him, without Jesus, and that we were to prepare our hearts for the coming of the Lord. That every valley was to be filled, every hill was to be leveled. And as Jesus is stepping over people, bowing for production, God, give my life purpose. People are saying the same thing of him, except he's just walking in the flesh. Elijah! Yeah, some say Elijah. As a matter of fact, I mean, I think about the fact Herod thought you were John the Baptist resurrected, but lots of people are saying you're Elijah because look at all the power. But it was Elijah who held the rain from the hub, if you remember, in 1 Kings. It was Elijah that said, it's not going to rain until I say so. Elijah was much like the people who bowed down to the gods of provision. Oh God, give us rain so that we can have crops, so that we can pay our bills. And people come to Jesus the same way. Some say Jeremiah. Jeremiah the weeping prophet. The one with a broken heart. But it was Jeremiah that told the people that unless they repented and gave their life to the Lord, it was over. It was done. Their protection was gone. In just the same way, people are bowing towards a God of protection. One of the prophets. In Deuteronomy 18, it was promised that there would be another prophet just like Moses, a delivering prophet. And that delivering prophet is one that they would have to turn to. And they'd have to hear him. And if they didn't, they would be cut off. It was all going to culminate with him. And I've got to be honest with you. If I don't really embrace what Jesus is saying here, I'm in trouble. As your pastor, I'm in trouble. As a human being, I'm in trouble. Because what these people did with their gods was use them as the means to their end. The whole production idea, the whole purpose, provision, protection, pleasure, it was always the idea that they were the avenue, they were the usher to usher them into that thing. And if Jesus isn't the end of my searching, but he's the route to my end, he's the means to my end, I'm just as guilty as these people. The religious people around, this is what we should expect. There's always a remnant. Now, I'm not saying we as a church are the remnant. That would be silly. But I'm saying I want to be part of it. And the whole idea of it is I should never expect the multitudes to be going in the positive flow. And for me to kind of coincide and say, but this is what the church in mass does. It must be permissible, but not get my answers from Scripture is not only lazy. It's just flat out rebellious. And I know that. And I can't just look and say, well, the church is saying this or it's standing this way or whatever and thinking that that was okay. Truth be told, beloved. Jesus promised that the church would be a dead body. 
when he came back. When he talked about false Christs and false prophets and false teachers all rising up in Matthew 24, and we'll get there soon, he said, where the carry-on is, there the vultures will gather. He had just spoken of false Christs, false prophets. Those are the vultures that feed on carry-on, which is a dead body. Well, what dead body are the false prophets feasting on? Are they feasting on the lost? Or feasting on the saved? And that's simple. We can do the same thing. And we'll see how that plays out here in a minute. If I sound a bit sober and somber today, it's because I don't want this to actually just be something in my head because it would be nonsense for what we're looking at. Is this enough for you? Is it enough for me? Jesus is a good teacher. He's a miracle worker. You hear the things. You hear them from the lost when they are trying to be complimentary but not conceding. Like John the Baptist, good teacher. Like Elijah, good miracle worker. Is that enough? But Jesus now turns and he says to you like he says to me, like he says to them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, the first person to ever use his lips in a crowd, is the one who answers. And he says twofold, you are the Christ and the Son of the living God. Those terms are used a lot in common. Peter will say it, by the way, already once before in John 6.69. When Jesus says, unless we eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, we'll have no part in him. And we read that many turn away and no longer follow him. That's John 6.66, by the way. And then Jesus turns to his disciples after a mass exodus of people. And he goes, are you guys going to leave too? You're not leaving too, are you? Peter's response is, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where in the world would we go? Where could I go when I know where this really is? He says there, and we have come to know and believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Peter's already said this once before. Martha says it in John 11:27. The Ethiopian eunuch says such a thing in Acts 8, uh, 37. Paul, when he begins his ministry in Acts 9.20, will say that he began by teaching the Christ that he's the Son of God. I get that. And we can read past that statement, but please understand what Peter is saying. The Christ is the fulfillment of every promise of God for three simple things, to rescue, to redeem, and to restore. That was what we expected of the, of the Christ, the anointed one, the one that was even given a date to when he would show up. Daniel 9.25, by the way, through 27, tells us that. The Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the Prince. The math was so, was so concise that a former Scotland Yard detective, or actually a sergeant, would actually take that, draw it out from the day of its decree to the day of its fulfillment and find the day that we know of as Palm Sunday. Here, to declare him the Christ is to, dare, is to declare him your completion. Just like Colossians 1 says, you are complete in him. If Jesus became everything in your life and nothing ever changed, you never got married, you never had kids, you never got bigger, you never got whatever, you never got more stuff, Nothing ever seemed to progress forward from this point. Would it be, would he be enough? I mean, here in church, we would think that it would be wise to nod. But if we were honest with ourselves, and we were stuck in the same dead-end job, we were stuck not really moving forward, we were stuck single, childless, or whatever the things are that we contemplate, would it be enough? Would it be enough? Because it's supposed to be. Because you know what happens if you look for something else to fulfill you? You will put a way heavy price tag on something 
that can't fulfill you. And you'll try to make your kids fulfill you. You'll try to make your husband or wife fulfill you. You'll try to make your job fulfill you. And you'll be angry and discouraged and disenchanted. And you'll be like, come on, you were supposed to make me happy. And I ask, what about you? But he isn't just the Christ, the fulfillment. He's also the son of the living God. Now, for us, a son just simply means that he traditionally carries the surname and maybe even looks a little bit like dad. But to be the son, not notice a son, but the son, is imperative here because it tells us that he would be the one responsible for carrying on the family business, the family honor, the family direction. For some of you who come from cultures, you know that it's a whole lot more to be someone's son than it is simply to carry on a surname. That's the mission. In the simplest sense, who is the per- person and the purpose of Jesus? In the same way we are asking ourselves now, as we start to pull out of the EU, who we are and what's our purpose now, the same thing is said here by Jesus. Who am I? In your, in your, in your estimation, who am I? Peter takes it to Scripture and he lets the Word define Jesus. And he says, you are the fulfillment. You are the, the Christ we've been looking for that had been promised even before man fell. Before the foundation of the world, you are the fulfiller. You are my fulfiller. You're my rescue, my redeemer, my restorer. But you're also the son of the living God. And because of that, you have a mission, you have a purpose. And Jesus is going to turn around and answer that. But notice in verse 17, he says then, blessed are you then. Simon Barjona, you know why you're blessed? Because you've just heard from the Father. Imagine how amazing it is to actually hear from the Father. The Father. The Father. He said, you're the Son of the living God. If He's the Son of the living God, well, then who's the Father? That's the living God. And then Jesus says two statements that people love to go crazy on. And I say to you that you are Peter. Petras. Rocky. And on this rock I'll build my church. And the gates... Hades will not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And we look at this, and some have taken this to say, well, then clearly Peter was then elected to be the first pope. Of course, Jesus never had a pope. He never said pope. And by the way, the term that's on there, the band is Pontificus Maximus, which is literally the supreme leader. I don't know how any man could call himself the supreme leader. The problem is Peter understood differently then. Certainly Paul did as well. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.11 that no other foundation can be laid than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Peter says that we, 1 Peter 2.4-7, like living stones, we come to Jesus like the one that was rejected of men, but chosen by God and precious, the living stone. He is the cornerstone And we, like spiritual stones, are being built together for a house, a dwelling place of God. And then he quotes from Isaiah 28, 16 and Isaiah 14. In essence, those two texts are going to be brought into what he says. And the whole point of it is Peter understood he wasn't the foundation. Paul understood that Peter wasn't the foundation. You think those guys, if anyone would know, it would be them. So what's this idea of building on this rock? Well, let me ask you something. Has the term been used before by Jesus up to this point? Do we have anything we can borrow from Jesus already? Building on a rock? Absolutely. At the end of Jesus' beautiful Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, through 7, he ends it with this. The wise man builds his... Well, we've turned it into a really cute little song. But I want you to consider what he says. He says, anyone who hears my words and does them is like a wise man who's built his house upon the rock. The floods came. The rains came. The rains, the winds blew. The rain came. The floods rose. And the house stood because it was built on the rock. But anyone who hears my words and doesn't do them is like a foolish man who builds his house 
on sand. Same winds, same rains, same floods, but this house collapsed because it had no foundation. It, it, would, it couldn't stand because it wasn't built on the rock. And the two cases, please understand, both heard. Jesus had just taught the Sermon on the Mount. What we, what we may take years to get through, Jesus did, if you will, in probably 25 minutes. And as he taught through that, people are listening and agreeing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The peacemakers. All that blessing. Eight different times you're blessed, you're blessed, you're blessed. I mean, rejected, reviled of men, ostracized, kicked out, not invited to the clubs or the parties or the whatevers. You're blessed. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Don't pray like the hypocrites that are already being paraded pray. Don't give like the hypocrites give. Don't fast like the hypocrites fast. Oh, they do it all for an audience and you're their audience. So God says there's no reason for applause for me. You, are, you weren't performing for me anyway. Store your treasures in heaven. Lay them up there. Declare your allegiance with eternity. And realize how temporary everything you can get here is. I get it. And at the end of it all, he says, now, now that you've got those precepts and those challenges and those commands, are you just going to agree with them? Or are you going to do something about it? Are you going to do something about it? Because if you do something about it, you're like a house that was built on the rock. It wasn't hearing. It was doing. And Peter now declares, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Savior of the world, the Redeemer, the Rescuer, the one who completes us, the one who restores us, the one who does the will of the Father. And Peter says, and Jesus says to Peter then, upon this rock, upon this rock, what rock would that be? Well, the last time I saw that, that was doing what you just heard. And I could see them, if they could draw from the standard, the precedent Jesus already said, he's looking, he's going, now, are you going to build on that rock with me? Because I'm going to build my church on this rock. I'm going to build my church on this rock. This statement that was, when it's done, not just agreed with, not just nodded on, but when it's genuinely done, a church is going to be built from that, and a church is my church. And how do I know my church from the rest of the church? Because of the gates of hell, that's why. Because the gates of hell will not prevail. Wait a minute. What does that mean? The first thing Jesus links this to is the gates of hell? Not the first thing is a healthy life? Not the first thing is riches? Not the first thing is kumbaya and joining hands and singing songs and building churches? That we know it, but the first thing is the gates of hell? That's the first thing Jesus says? And it wasn't just that the gates of hell well, would, never, would never close, but that they couldn't prevail. Now, prevailing means there's a fight. But that prevailing means there's a fight, and it will never, never, never win. No matter how many times you get in a fight with this, it's going to lose. If you're part of this church, that's Jesus' church. Now, think that through for a second. The gates of hell. If the gates of hell were locked and could prevail, would we even know it? Would I even know it? I'll be honest. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if in my life I spend enough time banging on those doors. Because clearly I'm not in there anymore, am I? I've been rescued by Jesus. And if I've been rescued by Jesus, I'm not in there. But I'm, do I remember the hell I lived before that? The emptiness, the loneliness, the darkness, the confusion. Do I remember those days? When I painted it on the outside like it wasn't, but I knew on the inside it was everything wrong. And Jesus pulled me out. And when Jesus pulled me out, I know I don't belong in there. I know that's not my home. I know that's not where I belong. I know I'm not a citizen of that. So how could the gates of hell ever be an issue to me? Well, it certainly isn't to keep me in. Because I don't belong there and I'm not there. 
So where's the fight now? It's to keep me out. I mean, if I really recognize the depth of my rescue, there's got to be something inside of me that recognizes the power in being part of that mission myself if I'm going to be adopted by this God. And Jesus wants a church that will bang and bang and bang on those gates of hell until we get, until they can't prevail. And go in and say, who's coming with me? And we can go, okay, well, but people will say no. Well, sure, people will say no. But people will also say yes. And where are we doing that? And I'm listening, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling this into my own heart and not just yours. But there was a part of us, some of us here, had that fire. That fire that knew that the gates of hell would not prevail. That the fire that knew that we'd been pulled out of that place and knew that if we went in, Jesus would go and he'd start taking them out with us. What has happened? I'll tell you what's happened. We've become comfortable. We've become so comfortable living on the other side that we don't want to go back there. We don't want to hear those uncomfortable people anymore. We don't want to hear those screams and those cries because there's something that still reminds us that, there was, that we were rescued and we're so cleaned up and dolled up now we forget that that was us. You know, to this day, on the better moments, when I'm walking with the Lord like I should, I walk by a homeless guy and I'm still amazed I'm not one. Now, maybe that's not your experience, and it certainly doesn't have to be. But I look, and I think, oh, but by the grace of God, bro, that should be me yelling at my reflection in a storefront window, sitting around with a cup. It should be me. Shame on me. Because I've forgotten what it sounds like. Because the man at the tombs from a distance sounds too scary to go to, too uncomfortable to go to, too dirty to go to. Because I don't hear it as I'm crying out. I just hear it as I'm yelling. And Jesus turned to his students He says, now let's build a church on these two undoing, moving on these two things. You fulfill, Jesus. You fulfill completely. And you rescue. Because that's what Dad does. And he sent you to do his work. To rescue. You guys... We can't play church. People don't even want to come. This is an obligation. This isn't about celebrating Jesus. This is about ticking our boxes. We're not reading his word to get equipped to go out and do something with it. We're biding our time. Meanwhile, Jesus is handing the keys. By the way, did you notice not just that the gates of hell couldn't prevail, but then he gives us the keys to the kingdom? Did you see that both sides are wide open? It wasn't like we just pull him out of hell and leave him in between. What's the one thing that I want in heaven? It's you. It's them. I don't want them the way they are, but I don't want me the way I am either. But I don't want to see any of those people Spend eternity separate from God. I'm numb to it. I'm numb to it because, hey, that's not me. What's the big deal? And Peter, he says, you know, you're not just what the religious community says you are. It's not just about teaching. It's not just about miracles. It's not just about information that you have that most people couldn't get. This isn't smoke and parlor tricks. You're the fulfillment of every longing and the end of every searching. You are the completion of the route for any hungry soul. That's not just me. That's everyone. And you've come to rescue because that's what the Father does. Jesus, you're so blessed. I want you to live on that.
And let's build a church. Let's not build it on music. Let's not build it on teaching. Let's not build it on buildings. Let's not build it on a couple doctrinal positions. Let's stop trying to look like the world. and Let's start trying to save it. Let's stop trying to blend in and be in the lifeguards that we're supposed to be. Because you realize, right, that the church of Jesus Christ, the real church of Jesus Christ, are the only people who have the answers. Are you aware of that? You're like, oh, I don't have every answer. Well, that's good, but do you have the answer? If every sickness in the world could be cured from this same thing, would we even care enough to administer it? Because that's really the truth here. You want to bind it? You want to loose it? There was great debate in Jesus' day over two guys that were, there were sort of the two camps, if you will, of religion, Shammai and Halal. One, of course, was very austere and one was a lot more liberal. And they did this whole binding and loosing thing. I can develop it, but for the sake of time and clarity, it seems silly. On the other side of it, it's like, what do I want to see set free? What do I want to see collected and bound? People set free from heaven and attached to, I'm sorry, sorry, set free from hell and attached to heaven. That's what I want to see. But then Jesus, by the way, says, then don't tell everyone yet. Well, why not? Because the right who with the wrong what is still wrong. And their idea of Messiah is the wrong one. But Jesus will never let you see the person without the purpose. In the same way that you're asking today, who are we now? Who is the UK? Who is England now? Can I just say... It is time. It has never been more opportune than now to go out there for people that are questioning who that is and who they are and what they do than now. And this is such a great time to run to the fray. This is such a great time to run to the battle because the same people that wouldn't have given you the time of day on Jesus yesterday or three days ago or four days ago just might today. And I don't want to have to stare anyone in the face when we stand before the judgment of God and somehow look, have them look at me and going, why didn't you tell me? So Jesus tells you his purpose. Do you know how the rescue works? It's a four-step thing. He's got to go, he's got to suffer, he's got to be killed, and he's got to be raised on the third day. He's got to go to Jerusalem because that's where it was promised for him to die. He's got to suffer Many things from the religious leadership. He's got to be killed. He's got to be raised. And then Peter jumps in and he says, no way, man. No way. That's never going to happen. You just called me Rocky. There's no way they're going to get through me, buddy. Hey, if you've got to separate, if you've got to protect your Jesus, then you're looking a lot like the people that were bowing to the rocks. They had guards there, by the way, so you couldn't steal them. And they had a tendency to make sure they didn't fall over when a good wind came. And it's amazing how quickly your victory can be squelched because the moment, one moment Jesus says, congratulations, you're so blessed, Peter. Listen to what you've heard. And then the next minute, Simon Barjona, and the next minute he turns and says, get behind me, Satan. And you think, whoa, 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 what? What? And understand there's a couple things here. Do you really think that Peter was being angry or mean when he spoke here? Jesus, that'll never happen, man. I can only give you my impression. My impression is is that, to be honest, I really think that Peter cared. And out of his abundant care for Jesus, spoke. Because he was concerned in the most tender of care. And this was somebody that just heard from the Father. And you know what I learned from this? Even people with the most sincere care for me can still speak for the enemy. Even people, even me, who has sincere care for others, can still be a spokesman for the enemy. Maybe you've heard it said that the enemy thought he won when Jesus went to the cross. I don't buy that. Because it seems to me like the enemy spent an awful lot of time trying to keep him from it. And that's exactly what's happening here. Jesus says, the cross is before me. And Peter says, no way. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. 
You see, what Satan wants is not empty churches. Oh, he wants them full. He just wants the church empty of God. And what he wants is Christianity empty of the cross. And if church is empty of the cross, well, then we're impotent and irrelevant and insignificant like the world would want us to be. First, the cross of Jesus where everything was paid. So let's just make it an intellectual description. Let's just make it Jesus is our Savior. He's kind of a nice guy. He's our homeboy. He's not holy. He's not God in the flesh. He's not the Son of God. And he's not rescuing us. Because rescuing means that I'm a damsel in distress. And who wants to think that way? Let's just come to Jesus so that he could give us a good life. And give us the best car. And give us a nice job. Well, doesn't that just sound like that shopping mall back there? Caesarea Philippi that Jesus is walking through. So let's go and sing our songs and feel good for a moment and tell God what we want and just not call him Santa or Father Christmas. And things will be good, right? As long as we say in Jesus' name. We can demand it. We can declare it. We can claim it. And yet my Savior kneeled in a garden, knelt in a garden, having a mental breakdown, saying, not my will, but yours be done. And I'm supposed to, I'm calling myself a Christian, which means I should look like him. How do I look like him? I want this to be warm and fuzzy, but I don't see how it can be. What the enemy wants is for you to remove the cross. But can I be honest? What the enemy wants is for you to remove two crosses. The first cross you remove, by the way, is Jesus's. And if you remove the cross where Jesus paid for all your sins, then you have to pay for it yourself. And if you have to pay for it yourself, isn't that every other religion on the planet? Let's be honest. Every other religion, you pay for your sins. One way or another, you pay for them. And there's a whole branches of Christianity that have already adopted this. The whole idea of who you have to bow to and who you have to say what to and when you have to kneel and how many prayers you have to pray at what time and all of these things. And it's, you know, it's still, okay, so maybe it's not trips to Mecca, but it's still the, how many times you pray and who you give to. Well, and it's still the same thing. It's the cross is gone because you're paying for it. Let's leave Jesus on the cross. And the idea is he paid for everything until you said yes to him, but you have to pay for the rest. That's still not the same cross. There's no victory there. That's an installment. That's not full payment. But then there's another cross. And maybe you are okay with the first. But the second cross is yours. And there's our problem. He looks at G- Jesus looks at Peter and he goes, Peter, spokesman for Satan at this moment, getting cross out of this, getting the cross out of this. Let me tell you how serious this is. That's Satan speaking. Oh, I know your heart may be in the right place, but your lips and your direction are completely opposite. I've come to rescue and, Jesus, and if you realize it, Peter, by removing the cross, is actually stopping the rescue. So let's argue. Let's argue over abortion and creation without the cross. Hey, look at If you've had an abortion, let's take it to the cross. You want to talk about God's creation? I think that's fantastic. But if we talk to the lost about everything but the cross of Jesus Christ, what in the world are we doing? Subjugating them to our ideals? How does that work? Don't they need to be rescued? Wasn't it the gates of hell that couldn't prevail because what they need is a rescue? Not, they, they will not get talked out. We have to go in after them. Otherwise, the gates are irrelevant. But we're going in after them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is in verse 24. Let's bring this around. If anyone desires to really come after me, I mean, we're not just talking about calling yourself something. False sense of security. You really want to follow me? You have to deny yourself. And you have to take up your own cross and follow me. Now, please understand, these are three things, not two. The first two are the hard ones, right? Deny himself and take up his cross. The problem is you can't follow Jesus without it. You can't follow Jesus without denying yourself because otherwise you're trying to get Jesus to follow you. Let's be honest. Jesus, I'll follow you, but this is what I need to do. And Jesus is like, that's not following me. That's me trying to get me to follow you. Take up your cross. But hey, my cross will make people mock me. When I take up my cross, people will look at me and say, you deserve that. Yeah, yeah. 
my cross would actually say, you ain't all that. Yeah, I'm not. But he is. He showed me that real resurrection comes after real death. But I want to follow Jesus. Have you ever had groups of people that walk faster than you? I'm usually a pretty quick walker, but I try to be sensitive of the people I'm with. And the moment you're trying to lead a group somewhere, two or three other people are always ahead of you, but they don't know where they're going. We're in Israel and those kind of things happen. We like to duck behind a corner somewhere until they realize. Because once you realize you're in a place like that and you're kind of standing there by yourself, usually that kind of cures a couple of them, but there's always a butterfly chaser in every group. You know, it's not somebody actually is ahead of you. They don't, they just, they've got like wander ADD on their feet. And it's just like, oh, look, there's something that's completely away from where everyone else is. I'm going to go. And so you spend your time, you do your thing, and then you go hunt them down. And that becomes regular. But do I do that with Jesus? And I just know that if I have enough conviction and I turn hard enough and I, you know, whatever, certainly later Jesus will slow down or Jesus will wait or Jesus will change course because after all, I'm important to him. But I am declaring he's not important to me the way as, as my Lord. This is the way he says it. Do you want to chase after the life you have right now or do you want to lose it? Do you realize that this verse completely removes then all of the stupid arguments that we put out about homosexuality and lesbianism. All the ones about race or any of our backgrounds. You want to hold on to your old life? You're going to lose the new one. That's not the way it works. You want to let go of that one and let him reinvent you? You're going to find life like you've never found before. Are you trying to get God to fill your hands but they're already full. And you've already told God he can't because of your defect, because of your, and whatever the thing you want to tell him. As if somehow God should have gotten that memo and he wouldn't have asked if he actually knew. Am I doing that? And what are you actually able to give to get your soul back? I mean, what is it that you, if, if any of you ever have that place where you just felt like you're soulless, you just feel like, I'm gone. I'm so gone. So empty. So lost. I know that feeling. He's like, what do you think you can go to get it back? See, the only thing that the enemy would love to hold you ransom for is because he hates somebody. You're inconsequential other than the fact that he knows how much Jesus loves you. He knows how much the Father wants you. If the Father didn't want you and Jesus didn't love you like he does, the enemy, I don't think, would give you any time at all. You really want to hurt someone, hurt their family, hurt the ones they love. I think the enemy knows that better than we do. He goes, listen, the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of the Father with his angels, and he's going to reward. You know, there's some day where Jesus is going to show up, and we don't know when. That could be today. And he's going to show up in... He wants to reward us. But all of the investments of this world will mean nothing. So you won Monopoly. You've got Park Place and and Boardwalk. You've got all the railroads. Congratulations. But the moment the game is folded up, it's meaningless. And here's our problem. You're in a hotel room right now. You can do whatever you want with it. You can get so comfortable in there and you can say you don't like the artwork and you can say you don't like the bed and you can have them all replaced and all of that. You can be famous by the concierges and have everyone around you and they all know you well by name. You get food delivered to your house and you're all, everything is just great and grand. But you still got to check out. And if you spend all your time investing on the hotel room that you know you can't stay at. You'll never want to check out. And then what? You check out and you'll just feel so lost because everything you know has been attached to it. 
We're not playing with another hundred years. It isn't like if we could just send things ahead, the next hundred years will be better than these. There's no reincarnation. Hebrews makes clear it is appointed unto man once to die and then to judgment. You get one shot, this is it. You're not playing with a couple hundred years. As if, you know, in the end, maybe you live a hundred now. Congratulations, you'll be a centurion. But in the end of it all, you know, you, you invest other things and you'll get twice as long in the next one. How great would that be? Wouldn't you like that better then? Where you can take more time and enjoy it? We're dealing with eternity. There's a day there won't be any pews, there won't be any pillars, there won't be any stained glass windows like this. There'll be a crystal throne and rainbows that shoot out of it. There won't be just songs in a hymn book or, or praise choruses shut up on a screen. It'll be holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. And it'll be sung by innumerable company of angels and us, the redeemed. And that will actually be home. And there will be no sickness. There'll be no pain, no goodbyes, no sin, nor consequences of it. We won't even have, according to Isaiah 66, that actually even the memories of it will be gone. Because how could heaven be heaven if we had the memories we had before where we can think of the sins we'd previously done or the people we'd sinned against? And we will stand before God and be perfect and holy and pure before him because we'll see him as he is and we'll know as we're known. And this dream we're in right now, this vapor that will evaporate quicker than we can catch it, we'll have wished we could go back and invest things that we could spend for eternity. And you know the one thing I would have wished more than anything are the people that I could have talked to. Hey, look at Nothing relies on me like that. It isn't like someone's going to go to hell because I don't share with them. The Lord knows who to send. But I'm not going to be happy with me. Because I'll know at times where they were in front of me and they were ripe and I was too pre, pre just too consumed with something else. But I wasn't even really listening to the heart that was open. I could have said, you know, you need Jesus. I have the cure for that. Please, please, beloved, please hear my heart. So we're going to prayer here. If I don't pick up my cross, I'll never care about you. If I don't claim Christ's cross, I won't see past me anyways. But if I don't let that old person die and let him give me the new life? What am I doing? What is this? But today, something could change in this room. Today, we could actually give God permission to transform us, to make us hungry to bang on those gates of hell and hungry to usher people in on the other side, to be able to totally testify to testify that he transforms lives because he transformed ours and because he lives inside of us we should care about theirs and someday stand before the throne with people that we had the privilege of being a part of wouldn't that be the greatest crew at all to be around to have someone look at you as we stand before God and say thank you thank you so Everything changed the moment you spoke with me. You don't have to be equipped more than the gospel to share the gospel. You don't have to be a gifted speaker, socially savvy. You just have to be willing. And I wonder how many of us are. Jesus wants a church he can build that will move on Jesus. Him is the foundation. The gospel is our banner. That will actually take what he says and do it. Jesus the fulfiller. Jesus the rescuer. So who are you now? Who are we now? Because it wasn't just who do the men say that I, the son of man, am. The answer is you're the son of God. You're not just a man. You're God. Now here's the crazy part. 
I'm a son of man. You're a son of man. Man had a part in you too. But you were adopted by God and you're now a son of God. Girls, you're like, well, wait a minute. How about daughters? Because sons, I remind you, it isn't just about gender. It's about job. It's about the fact that God actually shows himself non-chauvinistic, but does the opposite and saying, you know what, ladies? I want to put you in that service too to represent the family. To rescue. And to be honest, I've seen some gals be better rescuers, more available than a lot of the guys I've known. We're all sons. Because you're not a temporary member of the family, you're permanent. And because he's handing the family business to you too. So who are you? You're a son of God. So you are in the family business of rescuing through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Build a church on that. Let's go bang on those gates and watch God save people. Not everybody wants out. That makes no sense to me. But not everyone does. But some do. And if there's no one to come knocking, they'll stay. Will you pray with me? Lord, I want to thank you for this text. And I want to thank you, Lord, for what you've done in it already. But Lord, I, it's so much more than just information. And I don't want to do this for your reward. But I know this much David has taught me. That the one reward that I'll get more than any is you. Because you're the end of my searching. You're what I really want. And I want to ask your forgiveness. Not just for myself. But for your, for your bride. I pray God... That you forgive us for our apathy, our indifference, because we're okay now, because we're not on that side anymore. That we're glad to be saved, but we're not willing to be soldiers. We're glad to be disciples, like we think that that's just sitting in school doing nothing, but we're not willing to be part of the delivery the deliverance. And you tell us that your gospel is the power of salvation for all who would believe, Jews and Gentiles alike. And I just pray right now for every person in here, myself included. God, please, give us a hunger to run to the fray knowing that the gates of hell will never, ever prevail. Move and motivate us in such a way, God, I pray, that you would build your church, not your retirement community, but your church, your headquarters, to which, from which, the world will be transformed and hell will be emptied. Father, I want to thank you for letting your son be tortured to death for me because he was part of the family business of rescuing. And he took up his cross and he carried it that I rightly deserve. And he died there so that I could have life. And here I am busy trying to embellish the old life instead of letting you vanquish it for the purpose of being used in the same way. But I claim to be your son, part of the family business. Oh, the family business has gone to pot, hasn't it? But change that today, please. Please change that. And turn us into people that are hungry for souls. Hungry, Lord, to look and see the emptiness on someone's face and recognize that we could give them the answer. And if they say, no, at least they're the one that has to deal with it and we're innocent at least of offering.
Thank you for sending Jesus not only to die on the cross so that our sins could be paid for, but also for his resurrection so that we know it isn't just about carrying our cross, but it is about the power of a new life and result. One where we are complete in you, not bowing to pieces of stone, lifeless things. And as we, God, as a country now prepare to reevaluate who we are and why we are, I pray for the soul of this country and its transformation. Lord God, please, that today you would transform. And even today you would use us. And in using us, God, that this country would be a country under you surrendered to you God in heaven and about your family business and I commit this church to you and God if this church just if all we really want is just to sit and just come and go and and, and not really do anything and not really let you build us the way, then, then Lord, just destroy this all together and start over or whatever, God. But please, just don't let us be a club. Make this something where you're the center of our lives and of this church. In Jesus' name. Amen.